hey guys i'm rhett from game devs quest so then i say hey guys i'm taylor also from game devs quest <laughs> you want to give it some more uh, time, taylor yeah <laughs> all right i'm taylor from the game devs quest podcast we're all about the beginner's journey into game dev awesome okay does that work yeah, I well, I well, those two work together when I take the way Rhett did it and then what you did. I didn't know if it might be easier for you to just kind of like <laughs> together. Yeah, Taylor. Here, I'll All start right. over. There All you right. go. I'll say I'm Rhett and you can say I'm Taylor and you can say what we're all about. All right. All right, here we go. Hey, guys, I'm Rhett. And I'm Taylor. We're from the Game Dev Squad. Wow. Game Dev Squad. Hey guys, welcome to Game Devs Quest, your once weekly podcast falling two game dev scrubs into game devdom. If we can do it, you can too. I'm Rhett. I'm Taylor. And today we're joined with a very special guest host. If you guys are, are indie devs yourselves or follow any of the indie dev scene, you might be familiar with him. He is the founder, operator of Gamkito, the world's largest uh, online game dev club. Yeah. Go ahead and say hey. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Delion, as mentioned by Rhett, uh, founder and head of Gamkito Club. Awesome. awesome. So, Thanks for being uh, with just, us, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This is great. I know yeah. time's super short, but we're, we're super grateful for you coming on. Um, all, all good. I had a work call after this that got rescheduled to Friday, so I actually time is not short. Oh, so oh, we're going to take up the rest of your afternoon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At least until I think my next call is like three. So we have like two. And, yeah, we have so awesome. much time. Awesome. Cool. Um. Well, shoot. Uh, we before we pressed record on this, guys, we started going off the deep end about some topics that we thought that you all might want to hear about. So, like, let's start over, Taylor. What was your question? <laughs> so, if anybody's listened to the Gam Keto podcast, you know a lot about Chris, uh, and I'm curious about the transition between um, being an indie game developer. Uh, it sounded like you had early on released some apps on the iOS store back in like 2008 or something and taking that transition from um, actively being an indie game dev to having your own business about uh, helping game devs get started. What was that process like? And I mean, what were the decision points that you made uh, to get where you are now? Sure. I really think of myself as sort of the indie equivalent to an educator. So not in that I'm necessarily training indies, although that's relevant too, but the same way like a, indie game developer tries to do what they do, but disconnected from an enormous studio's bureaucratic structures and processes and scale. Um, I'm sort of like what a game dev professor might do, but without a university's tuition system, dorms, everything, just the indie equivalent of like, all right, well, but if I can make it work at a much smaller scale, I can still serve a lot of people. I can kind of cut out layers of middlemen. And we know a lot, you know, part of why tuition keeps going up for people is the all the bureaucratic stuff necessary to sustain. And this isn't even blaming. It's just structurally inherent to that structure, that, that right. system of knowledge is all these layers of like admissions, handling and so on. And, and really, I mean, partly it's because my, my path sort of, my arc sort of actually traces further back from my first 10 years making games was purely as a hobbyist. I had no career aspirations. Um, I was started making games in 1997 
when it just seemed like the farthest off thing in the world as to professionally doing it. I was like a <laughs> preteen. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I had no adult mentorship. Podcasts didn't exist because like iPods <laughs> didn't exist. Yeah. And right. uh, as if iPods is still a word people throw around. And, like, <laughs> but I just like made little games because they were like fun to do. I got to play with my friends and um, kind of like it, it really was just like I had no audience reach either. Social media didn't exist, et cetera, et cetera. And so literally be like, I'd be working on a space game. My friends, Brad and Brian and Monty would come over and play it and like have ideas for like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a stealth mode and like add this power up and like they had no interest in doing it with me, but I was like, yeah, it would be cool. And I would do that. And the next time we come over, we'd play it two player together. And like, that was, that was for me so fun and enriching and just this nice part of my life. I really loved it and got to make whatever I wanted out of it. Uh, when I went to university, uh, we had a college game development club that I started out there for really co-founded co-established technically really the charter had already been in place it was kind of like stumbling through its first processes they hadn't really seen a game yet but they'd existed for maybe a semester or two of just kind of like getting people together on campus who also want to make games and part of what happened was because i came in with no proper computer science background no proper community i didn't really know what my reference frame was as i assumed like this university will draw on other people who also do this and to my surprise i had a pretty sizable head start that was just like sort of an artifact of luck of when I kind of got started, how, which books I happened to read first, whatever. And uh, that was my first decision points of like, well, and this, this I mean, this, this sounds full of myself, but I was like 17. So I was, but I was like, well, if I go work with these people who aren't as experienced, won't that just slow me down? Shouldn't I just be doing my lone wolf thing? Like where I understand how to build this thing or whatever. And part of what I realized was at the time I was also becoming involved with what I'll qualify a goody two shoes version of a fraternity in terms of like, you know, good for good philanthropy on campus, high GPA, that kind of group of people. I don't drink, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what I realized was how enormously better projects were when they had a community of people building it together where they could focus on respective parts and have dialogue through the difficulties they're going through. And so that's where I kind of felt like, all right, Chris, get over yourself, get past your ego. If they're not doing things well, that's that's an opportunity to make a case for like, hey, what if we structured our processes this way? What if we kind of like, plan out we're doing this way and that way and so that became our college club at Carnegie Mellon Game Creation Society where every semester we'd make five to eight games just also kind of hobbyist recreational focus we we likewise I mean some people might have had not a mind of like oh this might help my 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 resume this might help my opportunities uh it is a high rated comp sci program so it did occasionally feed some people off into industry EA kind of stuff um but it wasn't really our purpose. It was just like, oh, we have these game ideas. We're nerds. We program. And like a lot of it was like our artists were like computer programmers who used Photoshop. Our musicians were computer programmers who used Fruity Loops. And it was uh, just a bunch of total programmer type people with like, occasionally have like someone wander in from like writing or architecture or art. And we were just felt blessed to have like someone else care. Uh, <laughs> and they would be involved. We try our best to like keep them on board and keep them interested. Yeah. And uh, Carnegie Mellon also has a grad school that's focused on games education etc and that's like super tightly connected with alumni from disney and ea and activision whatever so they brought out a, a speaker to campus who was like the vice president of ea tiburon in florida and then while they're on campus i kind of went through our cs department was like can we get them to speak at one of our meetings while they're here anyway uh that's how they got my resume because i always had that in my bag i was always ready and uh that's what led to my first internship in AAA life and that's where i was working on medal of honor airborne the, the next summer more airborne the next summer finishing airborne because those games take forever. Uh, and then also that same, that third last summer on boom blocks for Wii, which I still to this day love for anybody who doesn't know it. It's kind of a 3d angry birds before angry birds yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Um, and 
that was where that was so vastly disillusioning compared to the experience I had in clubs or as a hobbyist, where now there were like 180 people, maybe 250 who touched Airborne before it came out. And literally, it'd be like one summer, okay, we're like pre-production for Airborne, this Medal of Honor game. I'd go back to school, make like another 10 games in these clubs, go back another summer, we're like on middle of production on this game, the same game, go back to another year of school, make another 10 just like puzzle games and space games and whatever we felt like doing, and go back to another summer, and we're finishing the same game. And that's when I kind of realized, like, I really liked my whole life. I could kind of dabble in this and dabble in that and wear a design hat and make sound effects and do some programming. And I like that flexibility. I like that experience. And, and I completely respect it at enormous scale. Like, the place would just burst into flames if you try that when you have 280 people touching a three-year project, where instead it's like you have to think about nothing but, like, designing concrete pillboxes in a 1940s style to have, like, ambushes set up in for, like, three solid years because uh, like that's your specialization you got to be the world's best at that and that's where I kind of figured out like this wasn't really where I saw myself long term this wasn't what I found fulfilling and that was also every phase of my life I've spoken to more senior people at the company more senior people down the path same thing was in a kind of academic branch that's like okay well what trade-offs have you made to be here what things do you like or dislike about this path that you've felt like in your life and decided that like this is a fine place for many people this is an amazingly they're good people. They're nice people. It's a fair company in terms of pays people well, et cetera, at least in terms of my experience of my particular studio, but just wasn't a fit for like what I wanted out of things, what I thought was important to me. It wasn't as fulfilling in the same way. Uh, so initially I was kind of triple A by accident. And that's when I sort of uh, needed a life raft. And this is before Indie kind of existed. This was 2007, 2008 now. So right, maybe around the turning point of when like yeah. XNA, Arcade and all these kind of things started blowing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I went off instead to work at a friend's startup. He was actually the original founder slash co-founder of that same club, although he was a PhD student when I was like a freshman. So he was further in his timeline. And he was starting a startup that was like to help teenagers build web games, like just drag and drop stuff and like build their own games and tell stories and share them online. And I was like, yes, that is exactly my kind of like hobbyist approach, like doing it for fun, doing it for enrichment, expressing ourselves. And I went over there, absolutely loved the heck out of it, small company. And suddenly, instead of having like a huge team of 180 people where I'm like, I don't know what the that corner of the third floor does. I was like, I know why John is here. I know what Dave does. I know why Matilda's here. And I just really liked that tighter knit group. The nature of a Silicon Valley studded funded startup, though, is two things. One, it has to grow. So it can't stay that size. It's like necessary to people invest serious money into its growth metrics, et cetera. And then secondarily, there came a point in the company's history where like it might've sustained its cost or whatever. And none of this is like behind the scenes information. This is things I figured out after I left or whatever, but in order to really have explosive growth, they had to pivot and instead make like Facebook casual games because that's where the explosive growth was. And this simultaneously helped kind of like shake me out of like, uh, okay, that's not my future either. That's, I got nothing against those people who play them necessarily. It's just not what I'm here to do. So I'm going to go do something else. And it also sort of raised my uh, antenna to a way that still to this day, like my current company, I take no outside funding. I'm not on a bank loan. I don't find investors. I've turned down and turned away investment opportunities because I've seen how that makes you lose control of what you're doing to the point of like, it would become the company I left because that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, And so that sort of, I think was a useful scar in my path, but that was basically, I went from AAA, Silicon Valley startup. And then from there, that's when I dove into uh, around the end of my time there, a former executive from EA is where this ties back to it. Uh, Neil Young, not the musician, obviously, but he's been like a 10-year <laughs> general manager for EA. 
he had left the company shortly after I joined full time and he went to go found an iPhone publisher in Jimoco with some of his other industry buddies, Bob Stevenson, some of his other Mike Micah, some of his other guys. And they reached out to me, they're like, hey, what have you been doing? And I was like, Oh, I've been going crazy ever since I left EA, making an experimental gameplay product every single night outside of my full-time overtime at the startup because like I just I just like making little stuff rapidly. That's what I'm all about. And they're like, oh, iPhone's new. Uh, do you wanna do you wanna make an iPhone game with us for us? Whatever. And so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And so that uh, that led to Topple, which was uh, like a top two paid app slash game in the world. Uh, I think wow. number one in Russia and Israel or something. <laughs> uh, the game that was in number one, by the way, was like a $15 motocross game on sale for 99 cents. So I, I, I maintain <laughs> that's not fair. Uh, our app was always 99 cents. Uh, but so that was my pivot into kind of like, okay, that was still through a publisher, but it was kind of more indie in terms of like, we had a lot of the creative kind of dictation. They kind of had the high level vision, the title, the concept sort of stuff. Did a lot of back and forth. That, for that, I co-developed that with John Nesky uh roommate at the time knew him from my first club and uh that was then i was like okay well there were some frustrating things just the nature of being a, a young person in their 20s with no lawyer working with enormous triple a industry veterans there's things you don't want to look out for there's mistakes you make i can't even blame them like i was kind of a schmuck at that you know like i don't know you know, just you're playing with something that's way beyond your scale and you kind of figure things out too late and then i was like okay well i'm gonna try to self make some games it seems like a good time for it uh so that's where made some independent iPhone games and those did all right enough to like pay my rent for a year and a half and now to head San Francisco and keep my business going. Uh, but that, around that same point is when I started feeling like I still, those are then basically solo projects and I still missed like the club, the recreational, like the just doing it with a team, the kind of having fun, the learning through it. Um, there are all these pressures that to do, do it commercially, obviously change your relationship to it. And I use the example, right? Like if somebody really loves to play soccer, that doesn't necessarily mean like they're going to like love the life of being a professional FIFA player. Because like your relationship to it massively changes. Like pro basketball players are contractually not allowed in some cases to play basketball outside of practicing with a team to like reduce ankle injury or whatever. And like suddenly you can only do it if there's a market justification. If the space isn't saturated, you want to do a space shooter, you can't. That's so last year. You want to do like, oh, you don't like him in that transaction? Sorry, that's where the money is right now for highest grossing. And, and so I was trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we get back to this thing that I loved as to just making what we felt like making, the way we felt like making it, uh, that's part of what steered me a little bit back towards grad school. And the tipping point for that was, uh, uh, sorry, stop me if I'm just monologuing too long. But I, <laughs> I met with like, uh, war, so one of the other sort of inflection points in my path, I'd read this forward to a book, like game design theory reader, one of these kind of things. And Warren Robinett, the creator of Atari Adventure, had written in it like, hey, a lot of the foundational original genre founders in our industry are still alive, but getting older. Maybe more people should interview them while we have the chance. It'd be like if musicians like still had Bach and Mozart wandering around and we're like, eh, you know, like talk to these people, <laughs> brain sponge them, share whatever they got to say. And I was like, well, that, that applies to Warren Robnett too. Like not to call him old or anything, but like he made Atari Adventure 1977. He had like, that's the genre Zelda's in. Uh, right. And he lived near me because he was in Palo Alto. I was in San Francisco. So I arranged to meet with him over food and I put like our interview up my blog or whatever. And part of his discussion was, okay, well, if you have an issue with the way grad schools teach game development, which at the time I had these, part of why I hadn't stayed in school was like, okay, well, there was a certain way they teach that that's really good for board games, strategy games, story games, other kinds of things that just aren't the kind of games I care about. He was like, well, that's really an opportunity to go in there and help make a case for all the other people out there who would be appealed to if you taught games this different way or understood them in this different kind of a way. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to take Warren Robinett's advice and like ignore it. I'm going to 
pivot my life basically on that. <laughs> uh, and that's what took me back into school uh, where I was kind of on track to become a professor was the next path I was kind of following. <laughs> and then enough years of that kind of feeling like, okay, well, this is an incredible structure, obviously for certain kinds of things. And to this day, if someone is my lawyer, my accountant, my brain surgeon, please spend a lot of years in school. But for the case of game development in particular, there's a level of investment that's necessary to do it as like the focus, the major, the degree, the grad certification, whatever, that to me felt out of sync with the market opportunities for people in terms of like, it's sort of like, and this is not to bash anyone to do it because I think people at this point understand the odds of more established fields. When someone gets a degree in photography or gets a degree in playing an instrument, they know like that market is rough to do that professionally. (laughs) They might still want to do it for their own enrichment or whatever, but like they know what they're getting into. But with games, it was very hard because the market shifted and changed so fast that it went from like, there are no jobs in games to like, there's plenty of jobs at like internships at big companies to like, oh, there's this opportunities in indie sphere to like, ooh, I hope you're ready to like lose money on seven games before you're profitable. <laughs> and those, those changes happen so fast. And these institutions are really built for like, math hasn't changed a lot in 50 years. Astronomy, I'm sure they made some improvements, but like the foundations are not going anywhere. But I didn't feel the same way for games. That's where I started to feel like, all right, well, what I really want to do is run something more like a karate dojo or guitar lessons level of investment, where instead of like five digits into debt for four years of your life, it's like, I don't know, double digits, maybe triple digits, depending on the amount of time and attention and energy effort you're getting to just kind of walk you through like, hey, you want to do this thing. I can help get you doing the thing. Um, Not promising it as a commercial market opportunity, not trying to sell it as like, oh, you should learn guitar to become like an onstage person selling tickets. But it's like, you want to play guitar? All right. You want to make games? I can help you do that. Uh, and that's very much been what I've built my current company around is, is a model of when I was in grad school, I started a second club, much like my first club. Uh, and when I got out of there, I was like, well, I, I can make that work for people who aren't behind a tuition paywall, who don't have to be at Georgia Tech or Carnegie Mellon to participate in the kind of processes and stuff we figured out. But that's, that's the long version of <laughs> each of these inflection points that tip me yeah. away from like making my own games into, I still work on these games with these club members. Yeah. But it's like someone, maybe their first scrolling space shooter, the first platformer. Uh, some of our members now they've been around, they're like, they've led seven or eight games. So their stuff's maybe Pretty more good. sophisticated than stuff I've made. And uh, right. okay, I get to be a part of like, yeah, let me figure out how to fix this bizarre UI situation we're in or whatever. Well, I think it's pretty cool that um, Gamkito is kind of filling one of those roles that you, you see kind of with like Khan Academy and stuff like that, where it's, um, you know, tuition nowadays is just crazy. Most people can't afford tuition and if they do they end up taking tons of money out in debt um and so i think that going forward in the future we're going to see more and more stuff kind of like gamkito and yeah i've obviously like, I, i'm banking on that pretty literally yeah. um <laughs> and, and, and but like also and i see these things and obviously online resources are getting great getting better information is out there uh, but i've been seeing these ads recently for like lifetime of training 59 dollars, and it's hundreds of hours of whatever's and, and I cannot emphasize enough, obviously, a pile of books is not the same as taking a course. Right. Um, material is separate from like the relationship to having a mentorship, having collaborators, having peers. And that's where my company tries to fill in like, hey, there's a human element to this. And, and for even people who are trying to like appeal to market or industry or whatever, uh, we found there's certainly cases where like they interview much better if they can speak to team experiences they've had, ways they've like inflected along a process where that's the only person. Um, there's this tendency in our in our resumes and portfolios to highlight and surface like our solo work. Like here's the thing I did alone. Here's my jam project. Here's my my personal whatever passion project. And really like that's a lot less appealing to anyone hiring because they're not hiring you to do your thing. 
they're hiring you to plug into a team. They're hiring you to build their thing for them. They're hiring you to understand and communicate with others in a way that like, yeah, if you lone wolf code something incredible, good luck to you and, and best wishes out there. But like, that's usually not really what people hire for anyway, for contracting or full-time positions. So in a, in a incidental, not our main focus way, it's also become a useful way for some people who are kind of using it as a springboard. And I like to try to, again, I, I use a billion metaphors just because our industries change so rapidly. But like in high school football, some of those kids are going to go off and like do this professionally. Most won't. But they can, they can function alongside each other. They can all learn from each other. They can all benefit from all being there present on the field at the same time at different levels of personal investment in it. And ultimately, even if they don't want to do it professionally, they're not left in a bad spot because like it was minimal investment. It was like a few hours per weekday or whatever to be on the team rather than like, you know, the, the essentially equivalent of going off to play college football, even if they kind of just weren't fundamentally finding they had a knack for it, built for it, going to compete at that level. Right. Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of us too that are, you know, making games, it's it's much much easier to work on games yourself than it is to find, you know, go out and reach out to people and say, hey, do you want to work on a game together? And if yeah. you don't have people in like your uh, vicinity to work with, then you're going to look online. What are you going to do? Go to Reddit? or Yeah, well, and, and, and those sort of, this is every now and then we'll try to do a competitive analysis. One of the challenges that I, uh, I, I read immensely, obviously, about like business strategy, et cetera, because like that's what I got to do. Um, but there, one of the problems I currently face is not having more directly mappable competition, which, which prevents me from having really a category I can be directly compared against. Because I'm up front, like, I'm not a university, but I'm also <laughs> not these other things that's like these online forums. So like post your thing you want a team for, and then good luck to you. Because um, people get burned by those things all the time because there's no structure, there's no continuity, people lose track right. of each other, there's no agreements in place. And like we very much are built in a way that like uh, everyone joining the club understands like this is a freeware project. This is for practice. We all own our respective pieces. No one's getting claims to your rights over stuff. Uh, there's this continuity of like the same people are interacting one week to the next. They're not going anywhere. Um, we kind of create the, 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 the simulation of proximity by like through our Slack form and our video meetings and so on. Um, people don't just disappear. They're like still there to be like, hey, how'd you do that thing? Or could you explain this piece to me? Or are you going to finish that? Because if not, that's cool. But like, let's get someone else on the UI or the icons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a huge, like one of the closest comparisons we have to us is really not a direct match either of it is these places where, like you say, people post on a forum. They're like, Hey, who wants to work on this? And nightmare of like, yeah, potential we, legal overhead or we have in our discord, we have people that talk about that kind of stuff all the time. And we host a game jam every once in a while. And half the time people were like, work together, you know, and most people don't want to, yeah. they've been burned too many times. Yeah, well, my very first time doing team collaborative experience was on the internet. Uh, it was back when I was in the middle of high school, and there was a guy in Norway who was making like a Bomberman type game, and I was doing all the 3D art for it in 3D Studio Max <laughs> somehow. Uh, <laughs> and like, uh, he lost, he would think he was coding a game maker or something, but he lost all the project files about 75% through it. Oh, no. Oh, and dude. so the game never came out, it never existed. And so I felt pretty burned. Uh, and obviously like that was one of the things I took with me is to like, all right, well, when we're in this in-person club, we avoid that problem, uh, in a way that for like the Carnegie Mellon group, the George tech group, again, we had this kind of continuity of like, you're on the same campus. We're in kind of the same classes. You're not going anywhere. Right. Um, we tried to recreate some of that with the, the current online group as to a lot of what we do is we've modeled and emulated how to recreate that culture in a way that instead our people are scattered all across Europe, Middle East, South America, Asia, and so on. Yeah, that's no, cool. I think that's awesome. Um, what is it like for a standard member of the club? What is their day to day 
you know, activity or workflow look like? Sure. I mean, so one thing I emphasize is it's probably not every single day. Uh, most of our members have full-time jobs or kids they're raising or they are full-time students in some cases, depending on uh, what phase of life they're in. And so really it's often like one or two days a week out of which it might be like a few hours here and there. And a lot of what we try to do is find ways to, okay, how can we structure in such a way that that will wind up productively used? The work fits together in a way that's releasable. Stuff winds up on screen that's showable. And we still actually, in a way that like if they're working solo, and so the best contrast to this is before the club, I was training people privately one-on-one. A project that might have taken someone one-on-one solo trying to do it like a year and a third to like get their thing up to like some region NES, SNES grade quality. On a team, they'll crank out in three months together on the same amount of time investment each because you have these obvious like multipliers on like a six to 20 times the attention being thrown at it, even if it's still a little bit each. Uh, And then secondarily, just the ability to people focus on like my only main thinking here is like concentrating on how to make the animations look better, how to make the levels play better. Even if they don't fundamentally identify as an animator or level designer, just having someone wear that hat and focus on like, I'm worrying about this part so you don't have to, let somebody else get far more focus and benefit out of their like AI programming or whatever piece they're working on. Uh, So really it is just kind of scattered around a few hours, a couple days a week for most people. And there's weeks they take off. Uh, It's, it's very fluid in terms of, we know that people have priorities. We try to encourage them in order to do it sustainably. If your work needs your priority, if your school needs your priority, family needs your priority, disappear. Don't ask us permission. You're, you're not like a kid going to the bathroom. Because <laughs> it's, it's much more like kind of pickup style soccer to use, again, my billion shoehorned <laughs> analogies. Where like if someone didn't show up on weekend to pick up soccer, you don't like freak out and like get upset and go hunt them down. You're just like, oh, I hope, I hope Tim's all right. And then like they show up next weekend. You're like, hey, Tim's back. And like yeah. that's very much our attitude towards it. Gotcha. Uh, of people just kind of chipping in when they can. Uh, it's all asynchronous because we're in scattered time zones, but people check the Slack to figure out kind of what's been going on the team. They maybe watch, they, they either attend our live Sunday group video meetings or maybe about a third of our members attend live. Others catch the video we post to our kind of hidden section uh, to review kind of each, each week the leads share their updates to the projects. That's the same thing we did in both of these in-person clubs. And that's really fundamental to make sure everyone's getting spotlighted week by week. One of the things that really tears us apart working on games solo or even like with this just small isolated just within our team is no one that we have no audience until the grand release. Right. And then like crossing our fingers and hoping that when we surface for air, it's okay. But in a club setting, every single team's kind of rooting for each other in terms of they can see every single week, like, oh, we got this new animation, we got these models, got these yeah. new sounds, look at these new That's features cool. that are fixed. And right. we get this like the other developers who understand the difficulty of fixing these little things and doing, making these little accomplishments rather than the consumer market who can be very harsh as to like, this isn't Call of Duty yet. It's like, it's never going to be. It's yeah. never going to be. Um, we don't have $85 million. We don't yeah. have five years and, you know, all these kind of resources. Um, and so, you know, they, uh, we have Trello's, people organize some tasks on occasionally, depending on how the lead structures their project, they can kind of, we think of like an apple tree of tasks, go over there and kind of pick one that kind of suits you as to like, yeah, oh, there's there's no pause functionality yet. I bet I can kind of do it to warm myself up. Um Somebody's just asking on the team channel, being like, hey, has anybody claimed this thing yet? Because I might take a look at that. Uh, but that's kind of it. Uh, and then every single week, sustainably doing that, we got various kind of processes and structures in place to try to acknowledge and reward consistency. Uh, one of the things that I'm adamant about in a way that's part of because I'm, I have the benefit of not taking outside funding uh, is that like I don't ever want to run the kind of organization where a lot of the way that gyms work, and they figure this out, they know this very well, is they have 4,000 subscribers because they can fit 40 in their gym and nobody goes. Um, and like, that's how gyms work. That's their model. They, if, if, everybody, if people were using it, they couldn't maintain that equipment. They couldn't fit those bodies in that room. They don't care. If they could, they might subversively try to keep people from coming because it profits them. Um, 
I'm kind of the opposite. So like very much the, we have all kinds of things to like, Hey, we have systems in place. They can set up and be like, okay, well, my aim is to be involved every week or every other week or once a month, at least once a quarter. If I fall behind on my goal and we track all these metrics through GitHub, they'll either have me follow up with them or project lead follow up with them. We have a bot on our Slack channel that can poke them and be like, Hey, just a reminder, you meant to be doing this. I know you're here because you mean to be doing this. How can we help get you back involved? Uh, and so that's very much a part of we're trying to like, I know they're here because they want to be doing it. They want to join otherwise. And so as much, you know, it'd be a little bit like a gym that kind of like part of your agreement with them. It's like, get on my case just a little bit. Like, yeah. make sure I'm around or try to try to. And, and part of the difficulty that is at the very most beginning level, we are trying to be flexible as to like uh, some people like, uh, what was it? So Laura and I went off to a, uh, went off to some random church in LA area for like some random Easter. And it was our first time there. And we're like, eh, it's Easter. We feel like we should go. And, and they were like, if you're new here, stand up. And we're like, Oh no, no. <laughs> I hate that. Oh no. And it was, and, and we didn't stand up and they're like, we see you two. And then they <laughs> oh, all do no. each other except for us two. And they gave us this like paper bag with a custom mug in it and some t-shirts. And we were like, we can never come back. <laughs> and so, and so we try to, and so like, I'm sensitive to that. And so we do at the very, like until they've done at least a check-in or until they've kind of configured on their thing, like, Hey, follow up with me these ways. I've tried to become a little more standoffish, but I'm continuously trying to like through my membership surveys and otherwise figure out, okay, how do we better reel these people in? Who is it? And cause one of the things I've also figured out is there's some people who they'll join the group partly just for like, for a motivational community of just being surrounded by like, here's people who every week are doing stuff. Games are getting released. Everything's on schedule, helps them keep progress and motivation up for like, they're doing a totally separate outside the club thing. And they kind of just kind of hang out with us as like a community that where people aren't just talking about it, aren't just thinking about it, they're yeah. doing it. And it helps kind of keep their motivation up and going. But so I've also kind of learned to accommodate some of those people. Like they're, they're active, they're learning, they're doing stuff. It's really what they want out of it. Their needs are met. We don't mind having them around as long as like, they're not trying to yeah. totally veer everything off course or whatever. And so again, that's sort of one of how we try to figure things out. But uh, because that, that's why it varies. But like I say, any given day, maybe nothing. Um, any more than like if you join a bowling, bowling league, you don't bowl every single day. It's like, yeah. It kind of can fit in an evening around the right. rest of my obligations. So yeah. what does your daily look like? <laughs> uh, varies wildly. Um, uh, and that is partly because there are multiple plates being juggled at a given time. So like my company was newer, I would have like six or eight different things I was trying. Cause, and this, you know, like I didn't know which would work yet. Didn't know which would respond to filling out these different sort of threads and even though I boil it down to now, the club is my main one and I've been phasing out my one-on-one training stuff. I have maybe a half dozen, dozen or so of those clients now left. Uh, I'm continuously also kind of like feeling out some other irons on the fire as to like, should I be growing in this direction? Should I be growing in that direction? And so because of, for example, like for the past solid year, I was putting out a YouTube video every single day to be like, this is worth trying. This is a thing. I can fit, I can fit in five or 10 minutes a day doing this. I uh, felt that out. It was like, nah. Um, but so because of that, like these things fluctuate. So for example, today, part of my task between my handful of training calls I've got with club members or private training people, whatever, what is like, I need to edit my podcast episode. So I'm still doing that. been doing that now for over hundred episodes. Yeah. And, and that's part of where like, uh, there's a whole bunch of behind the scenes, less interesting, I assume more businessy kind of things as to like where I'm trying to kind of foster partnerships or like opportunities or growth or trying a different sort of sales patterns techniques and working on pitches and just stuff that like really every business has to do and like this is a business that i do and uh part of what we kind of bear the we kind of shoulder is like when i worked with the publisher part of how and why that game besides the fact it was pretty a-okay uh reach so many players is because like the publisher worries about all the stuff developers don't 
they speak directly to Apple. They coordinate with other sort of market players. They understand timing. They pay attention to all this stuff. They make sure their product is different enough from the other thing that they're publishing around the same window or whatever. And so part of what I think about the club too is kind of like we're kind of a freeware publisher of sorts for our developers on their behalf. We, I worry about stuff so they don't have to in terms of like, We've got our itch page maintained. Everything's properly credited. Stuff's arranged. Stuff's organized. I record their GIFs for them or GIFs or GIFs or GIFs or ZIFs or whatever people prefer. <laughs> and like any more often, it's actually an MP4 file, but you have to convert it to a, a GIF first in order to whatever uh, hellscape of formats. Um, but yeah, like, Sounds like you've got a lot of a lot of crap for saying GIF. <laughs> well, yeah, it varies. It, it turns out no matter what you say, people get upset, which is also just like life. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what part I got off YouTube. But like, yeah, it's 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 occasionally it's looking out for like how do I better help these people? And so a lot of what I also do is uh, so out of our previous two clubs, and so Carnegie Mellon's was started in two thousand four, Georgia Tech's two thousand ten. We've had alumni from those go off to like 22 some odd industry companies. They worked on God of War. They worked on Destiny 2. They worked on Order of Whatever. They worked on uh, Pandemic back when that was a company, uh, Sims Games, etc. And we've had a handful of like out of our more recent clubs. So obviously those had the advantage like those are connected to Carnegie Mellon or Georgia Tech degrees and branding. That is a huge power differentiator for people who can invest in that kind of level of their time, life, relocation, whatever that we do not have in the current club. But we have had people in our club like get their first contract gigs doing art or music or their first like deal getting paid to program or they find their way from a, a non-coding job into a coding job, maybe not in games, but now they're working as a professional programmer, which they're happy with, et cetera. And so I'm also always continuously investing in like how can I really help our members live the life they want to live, move the direction they want to move in. So like one of their tasks today I've got to do is help kind of with some critical feedback on a person's resume who's in our club. And like, that's not like a part of our club's feature set, aside from we have a couple of career advisors, Rob and Jake for our advanced members. But it's because like, I would love to be able to have more stories to point to and be like, oh, yes, just yeah. like James over here resulted and got <laughs> his job he wanted because he helped. Break and we have a few of those again, like I'm proud to say, uh, but I'm always trying to build up those, which also means a lot of flexibly adapting to be like, all right, technically, this is not what you're paying your like pretty modest membership dues to get personalized help on but I really want as many successors as we can get out of this because everybody benefits from that, including yeah, everybody right. else in the club, past, future, and present. So that's also where a good chunk of my time still kind of like goes as a longer term investment. Yeah. Well, it's like you're not strategizing to be a school alternative necessarily, but if you can get the benefit of having some of those success stories. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and part of the reason too is that I've, I've been doing this club now is like in is nearly its third year. I think we're a year two quarter three. I don't know, like two and a half, 2.75 years or something. Uh, October 2015, so over a thousand days that we've been a club. Nice. Wow. But that's been long enough to see some patterns. And one thing we figured out is people who are like truly, really deeply career trajectory don't stick around as long. Because what they're doing is they'll like, all right, they've got some pretty impressive self projects, whatever they want to really, again, focus on, I think wrongly, here's what I can do alone as a lone wolf, as if someone's going to pay them to do that. Uh, but then they're like, all right, I need to add some team projects to my portfolio. They'll jump in, they'll bam, bam, bam join like eight teams because they're full-time in this in a weird way. They'll like slug in some major impressive features and just duck out and like add that to kind of their package in their portfolio in a way that to our members who are like, they're happy with their day job. They get paid decently as a software engineer. They got a stable career in a different field who are just like doing this because they love it. We've had some of those people be around since the club was started in wow. 2015 um, because like, yeah, they just finished <laughs> making a racing game. Now they want to make a space shooter and on the side, maybe make a puzzle game. Uh, which is again, like kind of where I've always been. And so for some of our people, it's very much just kind of like, 
this is this lifestyle. Like I want to make games. I want to make the kind of games I want to make. I want to not stress about finding uh, contractors and navigating contracts and worrying about release windows and producers and whatever. They just want to make games. And so we've also, because our dues are low enough, like people can sustainably do that. Like if they were paying dues for a local, you know, sports league or club or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. So what do you think is like, what are your hopes for like the future trajectory of Gamkeeto? I mean, I know we kind of touched on that a little bit, but like, you know, let's talk like five-year plan, 10-year plan, you know? Yeah. I, I, I took enough business grad school courses to know that any projection over three years is a lie. Yeah. Straight up <laughs> falsehood. Well, I'm, uh, I'm talking about your hopes and dreams I, yeah, here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I, I am, I, I am, uh, uh, I've got enough academic in me to have bailed on a PhD program, but also enough non-academic in me to like, I read all kinds of self-help books and listen to Tony Robbins or whatever. And so like, there are these degrees to which years before I did this, I was walking back from my, uh, I was working on like this, like, I don't mean to downplay anyone else working on this project. We we're building this like, tan, like this art, this museum exhibit about papers history uh, with unity. And I was like 12 human beings a year. will see this. I was like, <laughs> This is going in an on-campus museum about paper. The combination of things that everyone's like, oh, gunning for it. Like, like selling out tickets like <laughs> wicked. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this doesn't seem like a suitable use of the energy I've invested in this, in this skill in my life. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to find a way to help just thousands of people around the world learn game development. Thousands of people. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that. That sounds impossible. But I like say this to myself walking home from sweating in Atlanta heat, working on this like thing that again, like I'm sure maybe 40 people ever saw. Uh, and then like my online courses reached 140,000 people now. And so I'm a certain believer in like, it's, it's hard. It's uncomfortable to like say or write things out loud that stretch us. But like, until we do, we don't even keep our eyes open to like seeing like, Oh, that could be me. Or this could be a way that direction. Or how do I even beginning steps towards that mountain or whatever? Um, See, so yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed to at least the, the concept of it. Uh, one of the things that like aspirationally I'm always kind of working on and been refining is part of why we've only recently been like dipping toes in the water of paid marketing, et cetera, at scale is finding ways. So like early on when the club was 16 human beings meeting at this like hotel room that's outside of my apartment, the walking distance from where I live at Culver <laughs> cities, like literally just written like a hotel kind of meeting space or whatever. Um, I could know everyone there. I could have a conversation with everybody. I could tell you all about everybody there. Yeah. Anybody have questions, they all felt comfortable because they all knew me personally. We now have like a hundred people participating in our club, not every single week, but you know, again, spread around as to which weeks people can jump in and different levels of involvement activity. And some people try and out in the shoe and deciding after a month or two, not for them. And that's fine too. But that's at a scale at which like, I don't get to know everybody personally anymore. Yeah, and right. so a lot of what I've been trying to do, and I think reasonably successfully doing over the past several quarters of the business is migrating and systematizing lots and lots of things. In some cases with automation help from Jeremy Kenyon, one of our founding members and longtime training client of mine. Where like, so uh, for the first uh, year or two of the business, every time someone started a subscription on PayPal, I would notice their PayPal email. And within 12 hours, because I had to check my email inbox every twice a day for my entire life, set up their Trello accounts, hook up their GitHub accounts, add them on the Google Drive, set up all these systems manually. And now like we could be on this call and like five people could just join and then they're on it uh, because the automation system that Jeremy's helping us hook up with. Uh, and then as related to that, like, the, uh, I was going to say with that, like all across the board, like we talk about these systems like GitHub tracking and these other kind of scale systems of trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I help people still achieve their goals, meet their goals without having to have that personal relationship to me or without having to always converse with me 
Um, part of it brought on, we've recently have like now, I don't know why I can't remember a single digit number, around six trainers, a uh, specialist in level design, who's like a level design instructor, former AAA level designer on Age of Empires series, uh, wow. mythology series. Uh, we have a UI expert from the indie spheres giving talks at local conferences, stuff about UI design. We've got a uh, uh, Unity trainer person who's just general, like he streams about Unity development. Um, career guy who's ex Digipin and an indie professional advisor who's given GDC talks and stuff about like Jake Burkett of Grayling Games. And we have these people here partly because they can help specialize, train people in like, hey, if you've got questions about making your UI look better, if you've got questions about making your levels look better, meet with a person whose specialization is only meeting people about that. But that's also partly because I understand that at, 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 at scale, there are people that like will join the club and be like, no, nah, Chris just isn't somebody I feel like talking to. And so trying to figure out like how to make the club work so like they can still get expert guidance, expert input. And the same was like when I went to grad school, I was like, okay, these professors are one of my committee. Those, I respect them. There's nothing wrong with those people. That's just not who personality wise, I feel like I jive with their humor or their attitude or their energy level or whatever. And so trying to find ways to make it really work for more kinds of people uh, rather than uh, we dial way back to like 2004, the Carnegie Mellon Club was all C++ projects. And uh, libraries were garbage in 2004. So it took a very certain personality type to like make anything work at all with DirectX and OpenGL and whatever. And, and like it just wasn't going to work for as many kind of people. And so a lot of what I'm continuously in the process of trying to do is anybody who wants to do this, we really found a way, kind of a path, an approach, a pace, a structured thing that's going to help them do that. Uh, and and very much I, I admire and I, I, it's named after and I read a bunch of books about the business model of uh, Aikido dojos and karate dojos and so on, where like, if you think about like fighting history, it was just, I assume a mess for like a hundred thousand years of human history of like people with like, some people are bigger and some people hit each other better and like, can't, that sucks. But then like, there was this whole like series of disciplines developed around suddenly anybody, doesn't matter if you're a child, doesn't matter if you're like naturally weaker, doesn't matter whatever your age, like there's a process to follow that if you go through it, you can like reasonably, as well as someone at your weight, body type, et cetera, you kind of functionally defend yourself. And so that's really the kind of thing I'm trying to figure out how to continuously uh, erode away at the exclusivity of like, uh, you got to have a, like a comp side level of understanding of data structures to operate and much more towards it's like why we have this video course at the front end of our funnel. It's like, try this out. Here's a pretty lightweight approach to programming. If you have no background whatsoever. And that's been, I think a real success force in that like these older clubs, part of the problem was if they joined and they were not comp size students, they did not have a programming background already. It was really hard for them to get to the, the technical design computational literacy they needed to be a project lead successfully where ultimately they had to be able to fill in any gaps of stuff that didn't get done. But in our current club, we've had a number of project leads who came in with no programming background, no game development background, took our online video courses, dabbled in some other projects and then led projects to completion. Uh, We can have this funnel now. We can take them to a project lead uh, from no experience. And, but again, any given time, I know somebody joins who kind of feels it out and it's like, ah, it's not really for them yet. That's part I'm always kind of reading about, figuring out about is how can I make this work for more kinds of people, not in any sort of negative connotation of kinds. It's literally, it's like other priorities, yeah. other backgrounds, other interests, um, helping more people participate in it, enjoy it. And uh, the, the kind of like the aspirational, how do I get there? Reading about trying out lots of options is figuring out, okay, right now, most industrialized parts of the world, if you want an internet connection, you pay for internet connection, you got it. There is like zero question of like, oh, sorry, we're capped like 150 of those. Uh, <laughs> And so that's part of when I'm trying to deal with these kind of scaling issues. It's so that, okay, if everybody in the world right now wanted to join Game Keto Club and did it, like, we can't. 
we just, that's not going to work. We literally, partly we had a couple times we exceeded a limit. I think it was like, so January 1st, there's this thing just like with gems, people like mean to do something like, oh, it's my New Year's resolution. Oh, no. I'm finally going to start <laughs> making games. And we get these like bump of signups and A, their New Year's resolution. So some of that just falls off because, you know, reality. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but also I, I discovered like oh, when too many people join in at the same time, it's a little confusing to kind of get to know the people. They can't kind of get their grounding as well. When they ask questions, they can't tell, okay, who here knows the heck they're talking about? And it's been around a while. Who here is totally new to and doesn't know either? And so actually we've built an automated limiter now. If more than a certain number of people try to sign up in a given week, it locks them out. They can't. We're closed to registration. We're flow limited. Uh, we've, had, we've hit that limit like three times now, I'm pleased to say. That's cool. Nice. Other yeah. times it'll go a few months without hitting it. And I'm kind of like, did I do something <laughs> wrong? Where'd people go? Uh, I'm not going to have a marketing yet to figure out where they're incoming necessarily, even on our surveys to be like, how come? But anyway, uh, and so like, again, like I'd really like to figure out, okay, well, how can I just like, what would it take me to be able to take that limiter off and reliably and confidently be like, no matter how many people flow in, we can do it. Or there's all kinds of other alternative ways of trying to operate this way. Uh, anything from like certifying other people to run these kind of groups from franchise model stuff, which is expensive and complicated from both sides and probably heavier than I need to just trying to figure out, okay, well, uh, is there something like, so because I ran those two college clubs and for a GDC talk some years ago, I gave a talk about like, I interviewed a dozen, a, I say a dozen game level clubs. Two of them were like the current iterations of those college clubs long after I had left to try to gather like, okay, what are you doing? What's your process? What's your, how are you doing it? And, and no discredit to any of them, like they weren't killing it in the same way our club was when I was the head of it. Uh, and it was again years ago, stuff may have changed. But a lot of them trying to figure out too is, okay, is there a way I can even just try to help universities improve their, their structure, their plans for like running their game clubs or local high school? So uh, part of what I do out here in LA, uh, part of where else my time goes, is like, uh, I'm, I, I gave this talk at uh, NDK 2010, like my first public speaking for games about, man, you know, wouldn't it be great if game development in high school was like Woodshop or Science Fair, where it's like not for everybody, you don't have to do it, but if you want to elect to do that, like here's some skills that like, even if you don't wind up a scientist or a woodworker for the rest of your life are useful to you, you know, stuff you did stuff, you made stuff you're proud of, you learned, you know, whatever. And so now in Los Angeles, some eight years later, there's like four or five schools that have some sort of game design stuff in their curriculum. They've got like a class or two. They've got a tech school locally that kind of, that rents out a room and different kind of structures. So I volunteer with these different schools. I'm on an advisory board for one or two. Uh, I help connect them to speakers. I go out and speak, I drive 90 minutes east of here to go try to find one that's kind of a little further out. And so what I'm trying to figure out too is like, at what point is the technology, the tools and so on uh, accessible enough, quality enough, understandable enough that we can really get that same kind of team structure working if we picture like, what's varsity game development look like in a high school level <laughs> where like, you know, not everybody's into it at that level. That's fine. Some people who are, uh, the people who are in these classes that are really killing it, they're really doing great stuff. Uh, how can we better structure those so they can even have a comparison point between schools? Because right now they're on completely different technology, different approaches, different focuses, and that's fine, but it makes it really hard for them to learn from one another. Uh, a lot of what we do like in our club is everybody's using either HTML5, JavaScript Canvas, or they're using Unity C Sharp. And that's all we use in our club projects. It's not because other technology is bad. It's not because like Game Maker's flawed or Unreal's whatever. It's purely because when everyone speaks the same languages and is on the same page, on the same approaches and same levels of abstraction, they can help each other out. All the past code becomes relevant to each other. They can gain this really deep ability in one rather than like having put a foe in, you know, again, this kind of karate metaphor. I went to like one class of judo, one class of Krav Maga, one class of, like, then you're useless. Like you have no ability at any of them. 
Uh, and so try to figure out, okay, is there some sort of common ground in the Venn diagram of where I could help gradually steer and push in these advisory board meetings to like, yeah, but what if, what if even outside the classroom, there's something more like a coach here who kind of helped corral the kids productively in a way that I've spent 14 years of my life learning how to do. Um, and if I have to give it away, then I will, if I have to, I mean, I've tried been, I've been for years been trying to give it away. I've, I've, I've spoken in New York city, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Paris, literally trying to lay out and give away. Like, here's how I run my groups. Here's the dynamics. Here's exactly what you do. Here's how I did it. Here's mistakes we made. And I can't get anyone to do it or the ones who've done it, like they tried it for like a semester or two and then like it kind of fell apart afterward. And they were talking about GDC like, oh yeah, I totally, I totally tried to do a thing and like something didn't go right. And that's why I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, maybe the problem is, I mean, you know, and, and uh, uh, again, I've been reading about franchise and stuff a lot recently and certification programs, et cetera, is very legitimately like it might just be that they need some support, that it's not something as simple as like, if I just like waved it to an operation manual for like how to run a Hardy, you're not going to like, I'm on it. Like there's so many details to pulling it off and level of like your personal readiness of like, all right, I've got, I'm in the right headspace. I'm ready to do this. I've thought about all these details. I got to work out. Um, trying to figure out how to better support that. So like it could exist in more different ways than just the way we're doing it exactly. Uh, even with, so, you know, in the same way, like, uh, physical franchises, they're, they're geographically locked. I mean, when I got my tattoos, they're like only tattoo parlor allowed in the city of Pacifica because like that's kind of the region, the city hall, whatever. Um, for the case of this sort of franchising, obviously, since we're not geography bound, we are internationally on the internet, there might still be an unreal version, a game maker group, a group that does shorter project schedules, a group that does longer project schedules, whatever, um, in a way that I can still provide support, still connect them to the hundred some odd guest speakers we've had go through our podcast or speak with our club or have organized for Indicate or whatever. And try to figure out, okay, what are the things I can offer that help them do this? just try to get more people kind of doing it. Um, and there's a million models I'm trying to borrow from, trying to borrow from fraternity structure of like, you got an HQ that kind of coordinates values and documentation to make it easy enough for literal college kids who just got out of high school to like somehow start a chapter. Um, trying to figure out those kind of things is really where my next future stuff is at. I think that's nice. a pretty good idea though, splitting it off to different engines and things like that. Cause we have a lot of people that you just pick up, pick up engine and that's your path. And I yep. actually think that's a good idea. Just like you're saying, like I, I work in unity primarily and I try not to really steer away from that. Cause I don't know. I want to learn the ins and outs of unity. Yeah. I'll also say that on the one hand, like again, there's plenty of other viable options. Pi game get used to make games and yep. people do good stuff yeah. in game maker and people do good stuff in Pico eight these days or Godot or whatever. Yeah. But I will say very particular to our level of time availability for our members who have full-time day jobs, who are fitting in a few hours and even here and there. Unity is a really great level of abstraction and level of control in terms of uh, these past two clubs. So even though the current club is platform locked uh, explicitly, the previous two were really like any team can use whatever the heck tech they want. uh, And they have both migrated almost entirely to Unity just by virtue of like, that's where the resources are, that's where communities are. That's what they can productively produce something while they're full-time students and just squeezing in hours here and there. Where uh, Unreal is obviously an immensely powerful, capable engine. The people at least indie kind of scale I've seen really thrive with it are like former AAA, spent years working on enormous teams with Unreal to kind of know the tricks and the ins and outs of it. Uh, but it feels, I, I used the example in some of my talks that it's kind of like construction equipment. Where like, even if I need to dig a hole, like you giving me access to like a crane and a bulldozer, like I'm like, <laughs> look, buddy, I'm going to hurt myself or destroy it or waste my time on this. 
I need a shovel. Like this right. is the wrong tool for the job I have at my scale. This is a great tool for building a skyscraper and that's not what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's been uh, for the people I've run into have used unity uh, unreal. That's the challenge I've run into. And the other end of the spectrum, um, some of the tools that make things a little bit easier, they've hit the, they've hit the wall of like, Oh, they want some finer control. They want to rewrite some like graphical display, open GL type stuff. They want to kind of recode the sound a little bit. Uh, we found unity is a good level of abstraction. Like we can do that from the scripting layer without getting sort of lost into like, uh, sorry, that's, that's what this engine does. That's how it does it. That's, it's a world <laughs> yeah. in which objects move around and when they touch stuff happens, good luck with it. Um, <laughs> we can actually like code our own collision and stuff. That's a uh, pretty yeah. good syn- synopsis of game development. <laughs> well, and, and, I, and I will say that part of the reason why we have our uh, HTML5 JavaScript layer, it's actually not really about learning JavaScript. It's not really about learning HTML5. It's, it's really, it's a way of simulating uh, my video courses that they use JavaScript, they use it in a browser, probably because it's low barrier to entry. You type in a notepad, you drag it in a browser, your code runs. There's right. no IDE configuration. There's no compiler. There's no locally rebuilding libraries, whatever. But it is trying to basically recreate uh, the level of abstraction from like what I had growing up making DOS games which is where like, I kind of have to write my own sprite sheet routines. I kind of have to write my own audio buffer juggling a little bit. Uh, it's part of what we didn't use outside libraries because part of what I figured out from my private training with people is the people who went straight into Unity uh, got so much taken for granted and kind of their, their, where they're not seeing like, what's going on under the hood that the games wound up feeling very similar or very, very default in ways that are hard to put their fingers on. But once they've had to like write their own collision behavior, once they've had to write their own movement and passage of time as a whole field of argument in non-engine development, uh, then they kind of gain these new tools and skill sets for like, oh, actually, for this particular problem, that's going to work better for my game and the feel I want if I kind of code my own smoothing algorithm rather than using the built-in input smoothing or something. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, we've spent like 55 minutes talking <laughs> about game I'm I'm super happy to continue down this path but um some of the people that listen to our podcast would love to have a little bit more insight into your life personally if that's oh okay. man whoa sure uh <laughs> let's let's get weird uh, <laughs> i've been vegan for 15 16 years uh nice. i was a wrestler in high school and submission grappler mixed martial artist in college uh, um, wife is Laura. Been married since October. Uh, been together maybe four or five years now. Uh, met in grad school. Uh, she's nice. in marketing at in. She, she works like at a. Uh, she's a project manager at a company that does like Lexus advertisements on television and billboards. And so sometimes we'll kind of joke about like I have marketing problems, but they're not Lexus's marketing problems. <laughs> like it's not a. It's a very different kind of way of doing things in terms of like their budget for like a contractor from a client is like larger than my annual earnings or whatever. Like it's just right. staggeringly irrelevant, <laughs> which, is, which is unfortunate because both of us wish like, Oh, I was really had a marketing machine better, but like, it's not going to come from what she does. Um, and no discard, obviously that she's great at what she does, but it's different. Um, uh, we've got a cat named Edie named after the Yay. mass effect character. Cause she's a silver female. Nice. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. I guess if you didn't finish mass effect two, um, <laughs> We've got, uh, yeah, all about the spoilers on like 20 year old properties. Yeah, uh, right. I, got, uh, I, I met somebody the other day who got mad at me when I said that Eris dies in Final Fantasy VII. I'm like, dude, that. Oh, no, was- she what? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, vo- so, volunteer wise, and there's people who think that these are my full time jobs because it's like on my LinkedIn, but like I volunteer with Indicate and have for five or six years organizing their speakers uh, or co organizing. I'm one of several people who help make decisions about like, 
curating the programming, the scheduling, who's speaking, whatever. Um, I got involved with Indiecade, and it was sort of like still career talk because that's my life. Um, but it's volunteer, <laughs> so it doesn't quite count. And the reason I got involved with it was that Indiecade is fundamentally, some people are like, oh, it's a conference like GDC or PAX or whatever. It's not an industry conference. It's not a consumer conference. It's an arts festival. It is, it's Sundance. It's like MoMA putting on a show. It's an arts festival. And, but because of that is people would come and attend IndieK just from the general public, non-developers and be like, oh, this is really cool. These projects are clearly like not made on the same kind of budget as these console games we buy off of shelves. I wonder if I can make games too. And then they go to the talks, but because it's an arts festival, a lot of the talks used to be like pretty highbrow PhD level discussions (laughs) of like these art theorists and like disagreements in the traditional domains. And I was like, look, nobody, I mean, those people exist and they're coming to these things, but there's a lot of other people who are like, it's going way over their heads. And so my focus as a speaker organizer for Indicate has always been like, okay, we're really, really practical down to earth from the ground up stuff. Game programmers talking about game programming, game writers talking about game writing, levels are talking about level design, including like, here's what you assume my job is. Here's what I'm actually doing every single day. Uh, and variations on that. And that's something we've been doing now for, we used to call it the game you program. We've moved away from the branding. It's actually literally the shirt I'm wearing right now. Uh, partly because there's another thing called Game U that's like in Ohio, uh, in New Jersey. From it started before the Game U series of talks with Indicate, so we want to avoid trademark conflict or whatever. But like basically, it's just been very practical stuff. I'm doing this now five or six years. So because that we have returners who are getting more and more advanced, so now we try to bring some talks in for them as well. Also volunteer uh, some more recently on IGDA Los Angeles's board of directors, uh, trying to help local Los Angeles people who are oftentimes people will come new to the LA area. They're like looking for game audio work. They're like coming in as a student or whatever. And we just try to help plug them into like, Oh, here's some other meetups going on. Here's some stuff we put on. Here's some panels we're arranging. Uh, and that's also a like hustle and very hard volunteer group of good people just trying to like help give back and support people who are new and finding each other and that kind of thing. So I'm doing lots of that. Um, so it sounds like you have zero free time. I, 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 well, <laughs> same thing. Depends how you look at it. It's all free time. Um, yeah. and, and in a way that like, and, and people write about stuff sometimes like, oh, if you do what you love, then like you never work. Um, and like some people joke like, oh, you work 100% of the time. It, it just kind of depends how you look at it. But like if, if, if I had infinite money and I clearly absolutely do not, uh, <laughs> nowhere near it. Uh, speaking of which, uh, earlier in my life, I was on the Forbes list for 30 under 30 because of just like my iPhone games done well and whatever. And people assumed because I was on a Forbes list, like that meant I was loaded. And I was like, I'm not on that <laughs> Forbes list. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the like junior division. People who like, is, whose accomplishments are impressive as long as you exclude people over 30. Uh, <laughs> and I have like people like, be like, do you want to buy real estate in Florida? I'm like, look, buddy, I can't afford a mailbox in Florida. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I had all the resources, I'd still be doing kind of the same thing. Like I still want to get people making games. I still want to orchestrate these kind of clubs. I still want to volunteer to help IGDA and Indicate and, like I really am super satisfied and happy with the stuff that I'm doing. And partly because, and maybe it's part of why I don't have more money. Um, there've been many situations where there's these decision points as to like, well, if I had to make a huge return on investment for a funder, here's where the market really is. And I know it, here's the people would really pay for if I was just like a little, little bit more tricky about my, my messaging. And I'm like, but I don't want that. I'm going to like sleep well at night and feel good with my integrity, knowing that like, I'm not pitching to people who like shouldn't be sold to for what this is, et cetera. Um, and that's part of actually also why I had migrated out of the PhD path in life was realizing how much schools that teach game development stuff. And I don't blame the professors for this. I don't blame the, I don't, I think, I don't think blame anybody the process, an enormous machine, but like they won't even differentiate like who's a player gamer 
as opposed to like who's looking to really develop stuff because they kind of want to profit from that confusion. And so yeah. I've always been like super upfront, like our clubs, we would have 150 people come to our first meeting and be like, games sound fun. And we'd be like, look, we make stuff. It takes a while and it's hard. And yeah. like people would just leave and they'd be, and they'd be like, good, as it should right. be. Um, otherwise you wind up with like, um, a crowd of people who like, want to like be football fans instead of football players. And that is a bigger crowd of human beings who are enthusiasts and there's no criticism towards them, but it's different. And right. so in my trying to maintain <laughs> this group in a way I feel good about it is meant making some of these trade-offs to like, make sure that I really love what I do, uh, and don't feel guilt ever like, oh, I'm part of the machine. I'm doing things the way that like, oh, that's not what I would have done. But, um, yeah. I have maintained that control and that to me has been a real pride point. And it's actually another thing that also is both not free time and kind of career but kind of not uh, I figured out that when I work with people on these problems about like my private training clients or club people a lot of their challenge really is like they they want to do game programming they want to do level design they want to make art but they're not doing it how do I help them do that and what I figured out is that like that's a really really generic problem that's not a game development problem there are people who want to write an ebook there are people who want to start a podcast people who want to make YouTube videos people who want to like ask a person out people want to like talk to their boss about a promotion, can't get themselves to do this thing that they want to be doing and try to figure out how to cross that gap. And so it kind of felt like if I had like grown up doing motocross and I'm like, oh, motocross is great. And like helping people with their injuries in motocross. And I was like, oh, other people have injuries who don't do motocross. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm trying to like, I've been working on this book now. I'm on my third rewrite. I've not released it yet, but it's, this will be the one I released. I promise. Uh, <laughs> about, purely about like how to get yourself to do things. And it's all these systems and techniques and processes that I figured out, okay, Someone who's trying to get themselves to do something they were felt not brave enough to do or not skilled enough to do or intimidated by whatever. What are ways we trick ourselves out of that or get ourselves to kind of like look the other way long enough to try to get the momentum going or whatever. Um, so I'm not trying to go like full self-help productivity guru, but I am trying to like, can I help more people than just game developers with the same kind of solutions that I've found? And that's something else that i am uh, been recently kind of throwing more energy at trying to get that book out before the next phase of business expansion stuff swallows up more time on the game keto stuff. Cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. That yeah. is cool. Yeah, because yeah, it's absolutely like the across all swaths of of interest groups, it's always the same problem. And you know, I've been involved in a bunch of different activities, and it's always you know, there's people who want to do something, and they talk about doing something, and they like to hang out with people who are talking about doing something, but none of them know how to just take that first step. So that sounds like a really good kind of way to bridge the gap there from game dev to the larger public and in my yeah. case it's also pretty specific to uh under the assumption people have a full-time day job they're keeping kids they're raising full-time classes they're going to whatever because so often i think and this is where i've uh uh if i kind of got the thousand year stuff i talk about it too much seen a lot of casualties to game development in terms of people who got in over their heads, tried to go full indie by quitting the day job, all kinds of stuff, made investments they couldn't support, et cetera. Uh, and then like flamed out on it, quit forever. will never make a game again, feel burned by it, hate their memories of game <laughs> development. And, and it, again, it just feels like if there was like no high school football, but just the NFL. And sometimes people just went to tryouts and just like, <laughs> frankly got in the hospital over like, well, that was a bad idea. And so part of what I tried to do was like, how do I reduce the casualty rate of this thing that I love that can be a positive force in people's lives? And so again, that, that really is the same thing of like, okay, I think a lot of people realize like, okay, they want to, they want to do this thing. They want to have a YouTube show, whatever. How can I, it's part of why I kept doing it for a year. Even after I was like, I've kind of checked out on this for a while ago, to be honest, but I was like, just to go, okay, can I, that's people's situations. Guys. They feel checked out. They're not feeling rewarded by it. How do they keep themselves doing it? I was like, well, if I can't show that, who the heck am I to tell right, them how to yeah. do it? 
And so, yeah, I've been sort of on these endurance things of like, okay, well, I can make myself do this thing that I have no business doing is not what my company does. I'm not really profiting from, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, trying to help more people realize like you can probably do the thing you want to do. Absolutely. So do you have um, strategies for not becoming burned out or do yeah. you have any kind of like daily rituals or something? Do you meditate? Yeah, absolutely. Thing? And the burnout thing is huge because again, I mean, that's also where I've uh, had friends who uh, not the indie version of Flamed Out, but the AAA version where they would spend like six years of education and practice to get themselves their dream job, realized like, oh, this is ripping them apart and ruining their life, quit within a year or two and spend less time doing it than they spent preparing for it. And I'm just like, oh, no. Um, and the industry doesn't care because they got another line of people waiting out the door to come in and take their seat. Oh, yeah. uh, but like, <laughs> whoa. Uh, yeah. So uh, so for we had a Tabby was my co-organizer one year for this talk. For we had uh, J- Dr. Jen Hazel come out from Checkpoint uh, from Australia. And she gave this like great talk about like avoiding burnout and about like yeah. self-care. We're all about that stuff. Um, one of the points she raised in her talk for Indicate that I found really helpful and a lot of game developers struggle with is this point from psychology that like, when she's practicing her, her, what she does professionally, she's Dr. Jen Hazel. There's a certain way she talks, certain things she thinks about, certain way she carries herself. When she's at home with her like significant other, she's Jen. And Jen swears more. Jen talks about other things. Jen's not stressing out over somebody's, I don't know if it's prescription. I don't know how different types of doctors in psychology work, et cetera. But like game developers really are bad at this. We're like, we kind of feel like, okay, partly because we're insecure about like, am I a real game developer? We're always on in game developer mode, whether we're trying to go to sleep, whether we're hanging out with our best friends, whether we're going to the movies and like, can I apply? I'm watching Harry Potter right now. Can I, can I take something from this and apply it to my game? It's like, no, you need some time when you're not a game developer in order to like sustainably thrive for when you put your game developer hat on. And that's going to help you bring another inspiration in life. It's going to help you not like exhaust yourself. It's like if you were a runner and you just stressed all day, every day about like running, <laughs> running's hard, running's all I think about. And like, maybe that's like the best runner in the world's mentality for everybody else. Like we can't, <laughs> we can't do that. We're just going to like, I get tired before I like run. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a lot of people wear themselves out feeling like they're always got to be on about it. Not realizing like, no, not only will that not help you, that's going to make you quit way sooner. And if you quit sooner, you're not helping anybody. You're not helping the players. You're not helping your coworkers. You're not helping your fans. You're not helping yourself you're just being dumb about it. Uh, so that's to be a huge point as to like being able to turn it off. And that's something obviously I clearly struggle with <laughs> my business does of like kind of always in like a little bit of game keto mode and I cover myself in logos on my bracelet, my side bag and my <laughs> shirts, and whatever. Almost like a joke, my water bottle. Um, but like at the same time too, part of the way I do these other things is like, all right, right now I am trying to write a book on productivity and like maybe that's some overlap with my game keto club, but I'm not thinking right now about like, the contracts and the paperwork and making sure that like uh, my budgeting things appropriately for the business scale and whatever. It's like right now I'm sitting in the park where I'm doing my writing. Speaking of which, it's another kind of like, I find super important point that a lot of us are terrible at is finding a way to, to spatially or at least change up our anchors. Uh, this is something where a lot of people work from home struggle with. Cause it's also like where they relax or it's the things a lot of college students experience. So they'll try to sit in bed and study. Yep. And either their body is trained that no, that's where you sleep. You're not studying. Or they get good enough at studying that now they can't sleep because that's where their brain's in study mode. And you cannot do that. Uh, One of the reasons why it's a bad idea to juggle a dozen things is because you don't have a dozen different settings to do it in. I do one thing, like I hang out in my living room and watch shows with my wife, which is home from work. I'm in this chair when I'm working on Gam Keto stuff. I sit at our dining table when I'm working on, like I have high volume of emails to juggle for one reason, IndieCade, IGDA, whatever, scheduling stuff. And when I'm writing my book, I'm sitting in that park. 
because that's where when I go there, I'm in that mode as much as like, and there's a whole chapter of the book I've been writing recently on my head. Like there's a dog that when they go to that park is like, I'm ready to play Frisbee. It knows like I'm in Frisbee mode. That's what I'm doing right now. Even if to some other family, they go, they're like, it's picnic time. Someone else goes, they're like, oh, it's playground time. But like we, we can program ourselves to adapt the setting to be like, okay, here's where I do this thing. And then we have to respect the sacredness of that commitment. We have to not muddle it. We have to like, I don't get to open up my book file and make some tweaks on it sitting in this chair. I know that's going to confuse and conflate and mix me up and bind me up. And a lot of what chews up our energy and our effort is like having to fight that like, well, instinctively I'm feeling indecisive. And we can clarify that by just being like, no, here's why I do this. Here's to do that. It's also why I don't work when I'm on vacations because I know that I'm not going to go back to that setting. Uh, yeah. I can't get back to the headspace. Right. <laughs> don't make that my base of operations unless I'm going to be living in like, you know, overseas or whatever. Yeah. So I think that's another, another for me, a, a very tangible kind of useful thing that we do. That's some great advice. Uh, when I was juggling projects, I always had different scented uh, herbal teas. So totally. like, <laughs> you bring that right up to your nose and there you are, you're in work mode for this, or you're in work mode for that other thing or whatever. Yeah. Well, exactly. And anchors aren't just spatial. Uh, one of the things, uh, like, uh, people have strong anchors to scent, strong anchors to sound. One of the reasons why I find spatial really kind of useful, uh, or a very trivial point is each space inherently comes with its own smells and sounds. Like yep. the park sounds different than my living room, than wherever, than this room, which is soundproof because I record videos in here. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but yeah, there's all kinds of ways to use like, anchors in that kind of way. So let me, let me pose uh, maybe a difficult question. I have no idea. But me and Taylor were just talking about this before the podcast, and he is feeling so burned out on game dev. And I think he's taken <laughs> some appropriate first steps, taking a break from streaming, letting himself off the hook of like doing this in front of an audience, that type of thing. But, I mean, he is talking earlier about like he just wants to quit and give up but if if you had to give him <laughs> wow some, thanks a little bit of advice, <laughs> sort of, you know i think step away or recharge those batteries what would you tell him yeah so a bunch of things that i uh look at for those um one of the reasons why there's this uh i would look at what you're making and how you're making it in terms of like if you're actually satisfied with what you're building it's part of why uh i've pivoted so much towards these kind of clubs and operations where people are like, you feel like making a space shooter, you got to get that out of your system. You feel like making a card game, make a card game in part because when we, when we're doing something because our boss wants us to, or the market wants us to, or like we see it connected to like, this is what I, it becomes our duty. It becomes our job. It becomes this pressure around it. It's my, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's, there's this thing that's only kind of loosely overlaps. Um, I'm forgetting the word. There's a, it's some sort of word that's actually connected to like moral, where like moral energy, moral effort, whatever, where it's if we feel like we're doing something that's like not what inherently intrinsically is what I would feel right about doing. The way I'm designing it, the way I'm building it, the reasonability, the level of polish it has, whatever, doesn't feel in alignment with it. That can be one of the sort of things where, like, okay, maybe I need an outlet. And so that's also where uh, I've seen, we've had people join our club who, they are a professional game designer at a large company with an international project being built. But in the club, they play guitar music for a puzzle game. <laughs> uh, we've got people in our club who like as a data analyst and user acquisitions expert on like the top two paid more recently than mine. So in a much more competitive market iPhone game, but in the club, he made like a physics based picnic packing game because like, like the company has no interest in that. There's <laughs> zero overlap between that and what he does, but like had to get it out of a system and the deterioration effect of what happens if you don't do that. So right when I joined Medal of Honor, the previous team there that shipped was Medal of Honor Pacific Assault and Pacific Assault. It's a World War II first-person shooter like most of the Medal of Honor franchise until they went modern. And the last level of it is a flight sim. And it's a terrible flight sim. You're being flown back home in the back of like a two-seater. 
and then like flak cannons kill the pilot. You literally crawl into the front seat and now you have to like shoot destroyers or something. And all the reviewers are like, what the hell? Like this is, <laughs> why is there a bad flight sim at the end of an otherwise like reasonably competent first person shooter? And the story apparently, hearsay, I wasn't on a team, is literally there was a producer who his whole career who wanted to make a flight sim. <laughs> and had never had the opportunity from the companies, the teams, the timing, the industries, the consoles, the control schemes, whatever, to make a flight sim. So he's shoehorned in this totally polluting the product, completely oh, off man. base. What the hell are you doing, sir? Thing that like affects the Metacritic score, affects other people's jobs, affects the company's like financial future. And it's like, no, don't do that. And it's part of like when I saw a super successful indie game developer thing these days with Google VR. He worked on Google Earth. Back in the day, he worked on COGS and extra solar and some nice. indicate finals and stuff. Um, like I would see him when he was like at the peak of his indie game financial success at game jams and be like, here's where I just make trash. Like here's where I just get it out of my system. Here's where like, this is not something I should do with this enormous multi-year plan that affects employees. Here's where I can like, ah, this is crazy. And if it's not any good, it's fine. And so in a weird way, uh, not to say like add more projects to your stack, but legitimately, it might be like maybe you've got something in you that it's going to help to like let that out, to get it out of you, to express it so you can go back to your other thing and be like, all right, now I don't feel so bad about like this is going against the grain of what I have to get out of me in that kind of way of like I don't feel like I'm expressing myself or at the pace that I feel is playful or exploratory. I feel like I've lost some of that beginner fun. Uh, we, we have people in our club who professionally have done game music for indie studios that have sold well and whatever. And our club, they'll make music. But it's more like when they were in high school and be like, they'll throw a song over the wall and be like, here's what you get. Yeah. And there's no producer calling them at three in the morning and be like, make it more pumpy. The kids need a poppy or like whatever. Yeah. It's just like, you get this because here's, here's something nobody else wants. And we're like, yay, music. Uh, and I think it's just healthy to have that outlet in our life where if there was some other mission I was on besides this like productivity or something to do things, it would be like making sure that whatever you're doing professionally, have non-professionally stuff going on whether it's a totally unrelated hobby outlet or whatever where i'm not doing it in any way shape or form that connects to like profitability maybe only vaguely related to the career stuff etc um I, I, there's actually a uh, related point that uh, it was impressed upon me we were touring colleges uh we visited harvard i did not get in so it's not me like humble bragging but when we were visiting the tour guides uh, they mentioned like Harvard has like more club sports teams than any other school. Apparently people don't think it was like a jock school. I don't know many varsity teams they got, but they got tons and tons and tons of club sports. And so a concerned parent was like, okay, but like, how does that affect your grades? And the tour guides, at least anecdote is like their grades are mostly better in season. And it's because it gives them this outlet for the thing that they like. They have to structure their time better. It's not all one big old blob of like, you know, I can stay up till three in the morning and wake up right before class, whatever they have to put their life in order. And so there's this, there's this important, like adding a thing or two that like we like, we're good about, we're proud of, we enjoy and put some structure or schedule can help in a way that sometimes people have this unfortunate spiral of like, oh, I feel a little overwhelmed. I'm going to take things off my plate. Another time is even more spirally, even more nebulous, even more blobby. Some of the hardest things early in my company was like when I didn't have anything directly, clearly connectable yet to profit in a consistent way and just trying to feel out like, what do I do with all this time? And that's the hardest point. Versus now when I'm like, okay, I have like 90 minutes between stuff that's like on schedule today. How can I use that profitably, productively, strategically? Because it can use that chunk of time meaningfully in a way that you can't when you're just like, is there anything yeah. else I can do today? <laughs> Should I start reading? Is that cheating? Like, what is, what is time? Uh, so in a weird way, like adding the right thing, I think can be useful because it's not really time we're usually grappling with. It's some other kind of internal energy, motivation, fuzzy factor going on. It's quite different from like shared minutes in a day.
Yeah, I think for me, like for whatever reason, I put a lot of pressure on myself. And when I'm like in the zone, I'm like, I feel perfect. Like I feel like I'm able to accomplish everything I want to, you know, I have a full-time job. And then I was working like 20 hours a week on game dev and stuff. And like, that was feeling great. But then I hit this certain point where I, I don't know, I don't start feeling good about it. And so I start to scale back. I stop streaming a little bit. And then it's kind of that same thing. Like I have this free time. And since everything before that had been like game dev, game dev, game dev, it's like, well, shoot, there goes my hobby. What do I do? I guess I'll think about life and like get all hard on myself. Like, right. I'm yeah. everything. You, you know? have to face the existential <laughs> dread. Um, so, yeah. Uh, when, and so, I mean, the other part of that too is that like the 20 hours outside of the day job stuff, like, and this is, I know people who also kind of squeeze it and find a way to do it. Um, those things are doable in sprint like fashions for phases or seasons of the year that are not year long for the same reason that like all year isn't baseball season because right. human bodies and brains don't do that. Uh, and so we often look at analogies, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, again, like I'm sort of like a, like a, a <laughs> secret meathead because of my like grappling background and like I was a varsity <laughs> wrestling co-captain, whatever. In some ways it's my denial of aging that I'm like, Oh yeah, I was totally, I, I used to be, much better shape than I am now. Saying didn't mean to derail you. So sorry. No, no problem. That's totally fair game. Um. Oh yeah. All right. So as I was saying, only moments ago, without any sort of edit. Uh, <laughs> right. Because there's also when I when I used to have people kind of ramp on board for private training, and obviously that works on kind of different scale and pace and things than the club. It costs more. People are trying to get the maximum out of their hours. More like guitar lessons kind of training or like a fitness trainer. And some people would go straight from like, okay, well, I have X amount of hours per week available, so I'm going to start doing eight hours of game development a week. And it's like, this doesn't work for the same reason why you don't start a fitness routine and be like, I'm going to run two hours a day, five days a week because I have the time. <laughs> yeah. And like, you can't do that. That's not like a, oh, don't do it. It's like you either can't or you can't for very long before your body is just like I, dysfunctional. You really got to build up and ramp up to that stuff uh, in order to kind of like be able to even reasonably keep pace on it. And the same thing very much applies. It's like, okay, well, if we can get like one or two visible changes in your game a week, I don't care if it takes you 15 minutes. I don't care if, if I don't, like, and part of the nice about one to change the same way we kind of schedule our club projects is like, okay, well, if it takes longer, you can tap into that extra time you have. If you get it done faster, fine. But it's not about like sit in front of the computer for two hours and like check the box. It's like, can I make this thing that we kind of size up to be around the level of what I could be attacking now and in, in a way that we, we ramp up from there. We start off kind of like, and we see people who are in the club, who've been in the club for a while. If they take a break for a little while, they travel, they move, they get married, whatever, and they come back in. Even if they've led projects, they've been hugely involved in projects, they still, we try to encourage, like, slowly work your way back into stuff. Find a simple task to do, like, add a mute key that toggles the sound just to go back through those motions of interacting with GitHub and talking to people on the Slack and whatever. Don't just jump in there and try to, like, I'm going to grok this whole code base and refactor the UI system or whatever. Uh, It winds up, like, we can't. Our bodies and our brains won't do that. And then it makes it harder and harder because we go into this uh, the same kind of spiral of like our expectations get bigger and bigger of oh now it's been weeks without a kick and now I gotta now I gotta really impress somebody to justify all this time I've sunk into it um, and I'm I'm a little bit uh, uh, reminded during the, one of those internships we had like a bowling night back at EA and we all went out bowling we split the interns into teams or whatever and the intern like organizer person was like okay well the winning team's gonna get this gonna get a prize and we're like oh what's the prize gonna be she's like oh I haven't decided yet. And then, like, week after week would pass, it'd be like, Christy, what's the prize? And she's like, oh, I haven't decided yet. So, like, well, it better be good because <laughs> time is passing 
and you've put a lot of thought into this. And one of our guys started being like, ponies, Christy, we need ponies. And I got with the chat like, ponies, ponies. But like, the expectation went up and up because time passed without having anything to show. Right. And I think that's where we started getting get ourselves in trouble. Like, really, the reality is like, you need to be backing off if you failed last week's modest objective, not ramping it up to further justify that like, okay, well, okay, maybe last week I didn't get into the gym, but next week I'll lift twice as much weight to show them. And it's like, <laughs> that is a recipe to fail instantly. Um, it's just one of these traps to kind of railroad ourselves into. Yeah. I do that to myself all the time. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> it's like my sport. I'm all about <laughs> That's why every time I go to the gym after not going for like three months, I like start running and I'm like, I could go faster than this. And I just go, go, go. And then why the even set time? Like, I'll just go until I fall off the treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you won't be able to walk for three weeks. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I one time ran a 15 K like for this, uh, it was called the shamrock run. And there was like all these people in my company going, and I hadn't run in like three years. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to run a 15 K. I was young. I was like 22. And yeah, it was, I ran the whole thing. I didn't stop, but then I seriously could not move for like three weeks. Yeah. So the analogy <laughs> is real. <laughs> yeah. We were joking a little bit. Uh, we were joking before this about, uh, I, I did do studio break dancing. There's a total of one video of me, on the internet of me it. Doing it was it. awesome oh, we, we watch uh, it every day I, I, oh that's your pump video i uh <laughs> I, I figured out that I, I am at the age where i can still do things i used to do but then i'm immobilized for like days it's like the <laughs> level of fitness that i'm at i can i can still pull off something like oh i still got it and then i do not is <laughs> Well, uh, could you imagine life if we all just like we gained all of this experience and moved on with our and learned and earned all this wisdom, but we still had the physical capabilities of a 17 year old like that's just I, cheat codes. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think and, and uh, th- I, I do a lot of rationalizing to make the best of things. I'm a big proponent of kind of stoicism of like, oh, let's look at what's within our sphere of control and focus on that. Uh, there's this like aspect to which I think that actually that we sometimes uh atrophy is maybe the nicest word i can use in certain areas of our even like my reaction time or whatever can have this nice kind of effect on like okay then i have to think more strategically then i have to i have to build upon a higher level of abstraction i don't maybe my entire career don't spend my time being entry-level programmer writing the stuff close to the metal uh there's other things companies need who have experience and visibility and architecture thinking and so on uh, at different levels of abstraction and same thing like my business now is still like I'm still doing the stuff. But I mean, when I was in university, part of what they had us there as TAs doing was teaching the new students programming because like the, the, the professors who in their day had coded compilers and assembly or whatever, they're not really keeping up with today's programming languages in a way like they don't have to, they shouldn't. That's kind of a misuse of their brain power connections, understanding concepts and theory and so on. Um, there's, there's this element to which I'm reminded of some of the business courses who talk about how like, uh, a lot of, a lot of us want like as technical people, like, Oh, I should be, I should switch into running my own company. I should be my own CEO, whatever. But there's this reality that from the business world, at least in the U S and Silicon Valley, it's often beneficial for the business people of the account to not be tech connected in part because like, if they're like, Oh, I'm really into C plus plus, we're going to try to make our problem fit that even if it's the wrong platform, I'm really into PHP. It's like, okay, well there's reasons now why that might not be the best solution, but like, that's the tech I'm super into can like be the death of a company. Cause it's like, that's not the best choice for it. But if we can have this layer of abstraction, we're like, actually, there's some things they don't know or that they don't do that gives them this benefit of distance to be like, look, I'm not happy about it. We got to fire the people who know this skill set and hire the people who know this skill set because that's how our company's going to still be here in three years with paying people with jobs. It takes this distance that like is harder from like, uh, that's what I do. Um, but I realized I sort of tangented there a little bit of like, 
but yeah, you know, it's beneficial to, 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 to respect that there's other ways to be involved with it productively and constructively. And, and that's also what I like, actually really like about the, our, all the club structures and stuff is that people can plug in in a lot of different ways. They can like, when I say like at least a thing a week, it could be a level design. It could be a pixel art. It could be a music, it could be a sound, it could be whatever. Um, one of the things that I think finds help us uh, keep our motivation level higher. Same reason why I felt myself kind of already not seeing a future at a bigger company is okay. The logic part of my brain is exhausted. I'm going to splash some colors around for a while. Not any disrespect to artists, but it's a different part of my brain being exhausted. Like again, meathead example, when I'm in the gym, my pecs are torn up. I'm going <laughs> to use my shoulders for a while. I'm going to use my legs for a while. And you can trade those things off way more productively than if you just like hammer yourself in one thing only then like, yeah, that's gonna, it's gonna rip you up. Um, I knew people who were like lead designers who were like, had had a good career who were just already like done. They were like, I don't want to ever do this again because it's all they ever got to do. And when I went back to like making those indie iPhone games or whatever, and I could do, I could like make sound effects with my mouth and I got to like <laughs> design shapes and come up with menus and stuff. Um, to me, those helped kind of like give the other part of me a rest and just do something else uh, for a change of it. And again, not to say, in no way to say like any of that's easier. It's just different parts of our brain, different ways to it'll wear us out. Yeah. That has Absolutely. been part of my strategy to try to avoid burnout is like for my streams for a while, I was mostly doing pixel art instead of diving into code, which helped. I got a lot of pixel art done too, Yeah, which was nice. But sometimes honestly, just playing games too. Like I, we used to play Dota all the time and the Dota two international is going on right now. And I haven't played or watched in forever, but like now that I'm pretty burned out, I turn on Dota and I'm like thinking about the game design elements. Like, wow, this game is so rich, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. Right, real quick, I'm just going to uh, split my recording just so if my computer crashes, we have uh, not lost everything said so far from my end. Smart. Okay. 20A. We're probably getting pretty close anyways, aren't we? Uh, we're, we're over an hour for sure. I'm keen to keep uh, chatting. Yeah, okay.